0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now. I felt that I had a message, but people did not choose to
1: listen to what I was saying. We all understand that she sat down on the bus. That policeman, he said, why don't you stand up? I said, I don't think I should have to stand up.
2: The narrow narrative of her just on one day did something. Couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Rosa Parks helped spark the civil rights movement in 1955 by refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. When she died in 2005, one network described her as a tired seamstress, no troublemaker. Well, today we look at a new documentary that explores her troublemaking, her lifelong dedication to fighting racism and support for armed militant black activists. The film is called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa. Parks will speak to the film's co-director, Yoruba Richin.
3: It's really remarkable to think that, you know, some of her earliest memories are sitting with her grandfather um, uh, watching the Ku Klux Klan try to, you know, intimidate and terrorize their house and her grandfather defending uh, with a gun, defending his family. We'll feature extensive excerpts and speak with Professor Jean Theo
0: Harris, author of the biography The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, in which the film is based. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Iran, a massive fire engulfed parts of Tehran's infamous Evan prison on Saturday, killing at least eight people, injuring dozens of others. It's unclear exactly what happened, though Iranian state media reports prisoners and guards clashed before the blaze erupted. Witnesses reported hearing explosions and gunfire coming from the prison. Evan is well known for housing political prisoners and anti government protesters. Many of its former captives have said they were mistreated or tortured there. The blaze came as Iran remains roiled by mass protests just a day before the one-month anniversary of the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died while in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. In Ukraine, Kiev was rocked by explosions this morning as Russia renewed its attack on the capital with fresh air raids one week after last Monday's deadly barrage of missiles. Ukrainian officials say explosive Iranian devices known as kamikaze drones appeared to target energy facilities in Kiev, though Iran has denied supplying weapons to Russia. Over the weekend, two gunmen killed at least 11 volunteer soldiers and injured 15 others at a Russian military training area in Belgorod near the Ukrainian border. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry, which reported the gunmen were from a former Soviet republic and were shot dead after staging their attack. On Friday, the Biden administration said it's sending another $725 million in weapons and military assistance to Ukraine. In China, Xi Jinping is poised to claim a historic third term as president after the Communist Party kicked off its week-long Congress on Sunday. Xi, who's been in power for a decade, could remain China's leader indefinitely after lawmakers abolished presidential term limits in 2018. During his opening address, Xi lauded his government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and addressed the economy. China's military and foreign policy he also praised Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong claiming Hong Kong shifted from chaos to governance President Xi also addressed the issue of Taiwan which has become a flashpoint between China and the United States
1: Taiwan 也觉得台湾问题...
2: The
4: resolution
2: of the Taiwan issue is a matter for the Chinese ourselves to decide. We insist on striving for the prospect of peaceful reunification with the greatest sincerity and with the greatest effort. However, we are not committed to abandoning the use of force, and we reserve the option of taking all necessary measures.
0: Ahead of the Communist Party Congress, a rare anti-government protest took place on a busy overpass in Beijing, where a banner was unfurled calling for Xi's removal. Another banner read in part, we want a vote, not a leader, we want to be citizens, not slaves. Social media users inside China said images of the protest online were quickly removed and accounts disabled. The U.S. and Canada have shipped military equipment, including tactical and armored vehicles, to Haiti amidst a mounting security crisis. This comes after the government of U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ariel Henry called for international involvement to combat gang activity. The U.N. warned last week a blockade of a major fuel terminal by gangs was compounding food insecurity for millions of people, with 19,000 Haitians already experiencing famine. Thousands took to the streets of Port-au-Prince last week in opposition to foreign military aid and intervention. Demands are also mounting for Henri's resignation. This comes as Haiti is facing a fresh cholera outbreak, with prisons particularly vulnerable to large clusters of cases. In Australia, catastrophic flooding has forced the evacuation of thousands of homes in the nation's southeast. Hardest hit has been the state of Victoria, home to Melbourne, where at least two people have been killed. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese warned the situation could deteriorate.
5: I do want to say that we are living in very dangerous times in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, what we have is inc- a, a potential of further rain events uh, here in western New South Wales, further rain events in Victoria and in Tasmania, all of them combining and having an impact because you essentially have a single drop of rain has nowhere else to go except stay on the surface.
0: In France, an estimated 140,000 people took to the streets of Paris Sunday to protest the surging cost of living and to demand action on the climate crisis. The march was called by the leftist France Unbowed Party.
1: I am angry because everything is going wrong. Public services, mistreatment at work, the super profits that are not taxed. We have a lot of reasons to be here today. And there is also everything to do with the climate an action on climate over all these years starts to build up and to have heavy consequences we had a terrible summer and this will continue if we don't do anything well then we have all these young people behind there what kind of future will they have
0: transport and other public sector strikes are planned for this week in France following weeks of strikes in the energy industry in Britain two climate activists glued their hands to the walls of London's National Gallery Friday calling out the UK government's role in fueling the climate catastrophe the activists from the group Just Stop Oil first flung two cans of soup onto Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers painting, which was protected by a glass screen.
5: More, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet
6: and people?
0: It's the latest climate protest involving prestigious artworks and museums. Last week, two people glued their hands to a Pablo Picasso painting in Melbourne, Australia, as activists seek to disrupt normal life in unexpected settings to call attention to the climate crisis. Meanwhile, protesters from the group Animal Rebellion poured milk onto the floors of grocery stores across the United Kingdom Sunday, calling for a shift to a more sustainable plant-based food system. Their protest. The test came as the British government unveiled plans to further crack down on climate activists through a new public order bill that could also be used to break labor strikes. The United Nations has called for an investigation into the cruel and degrading treatment of 92 migrants who were discovered near the Turkish border by Greek authorities Friday, completely stripped of their clothes, some with injuries. Both Turkey and Greece have deflected responsibility and blamed the other side for the situation, though details of what happened remain unclear. In Turkey, an explosion Friday at a coal mine in the northern Black Sea region killed at least 41 people. As Turkey mourned the victims over the weekend, union leaders and opposition politicians called out Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan for blaming the deadly blast on fate. The explosion came as tensions were already running high in Turkey following the passage of a new bill Press Freedom groups say worsens censorship. The new law could land journalists and others in prison for up to three years if accused of spreading so-called disinformation. Back in the United States, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock debated Libertarian Senate candidate Chase Oliver in Atlanta, Georgia, on Sunday. Next to the two men stood an empty lectern for the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker, Senator Warnock's main competitor, who refused to participate in the debate. The event came two days after Warnock and Walker faced off Friday night in what's expected to be their only debate. Walker was forced to defend his anti-abortion stance after a former her partner recently said the ex-football star once paid for her to have an abortion and later urged her to terminate another pregnancy. She had the child. Walker has denied the claims. Senator Warnock, meanwhile, defended abortion rights in light of the recent reversal of Roe v. Wade. The patient's room is too narrow and small and cramped a space for a woman, her doctor and the United States government. We are witnessing right now what happens when politicians,
4: most of of them men, pile into patients' rooms.
0: Warnock and Walker also clashed over the positions on the police Medicaid expansion and who they supported as their respective leaders of their parties. In labor news, workers at an Apple store in Oklahoma City voted Friday to join the Communication Workers of America, making them the second retail outlet of the tech giant to unionize. Senator Bernie Sanders celebrated the successful organizing campaign, tweeting, quote, last year, Apple made a record $95 billion in profit. Its billionaire CEO made $99 million in 2021. It's time for Apple to treat its workers with respect, Senator Sanders tweeted. And anti-nuclear activists gathered in front of dozens of congressional offices across the United States, at the United Nations and elsewhere, to demand leaders defuse nuclear war. The protest coincided with the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and as nuclear powers have been ratcheting up tensions amidst the war in Ukraine. This is David Boris from the group Chicago Area Peace Action.
4: The mathematical possibility of a nuclear weapon being detonated by accident by design is not zero. If it's not zero, it's
0: inevitable. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. It was December 1st, 1955, that Rosa Parks famously refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white passenger in Montgomery, Alabama, thus launching the modern-day civil rights movement. When she died in 2005, one network described her as a tired steamstress. They said she was no troublemaker. But the media got it wrong. Rosa Parks was a first-class troublemaker. Today, we spend the hour looking at this often ignored side of her remarkable life. It's told in the new Peacock documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks.
1: I felt that I had a miss, but people did not choose to listen to what I was saying. We all understand that she sat down on the bus. That policeman, he said, why don't you stand up? I said, I don't think I should have to stand up.
2: Narrative of her just on one day did something couldn't
4: be further from the truth. Often the man is out front, and you never hear about the wife. The reverse is true. She was considered a threat. Espousing radical views.
2: If they could see her talking about the Republic of New Africa, they're out there with the Panthers, then they would understand
5: the real parts, but they might have been just a little frightened she has been an activist for over 3 decades for miss parks it was especially dangerous
6: fighting on issues that are still very much at the forefront
2: she never gave up she lit the torch to the next generation
0: that's the trailer for The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, set to air on Peacock Wednesday, October 19th. Well, on Friday, I spoke with two people involved in the film, Yoruba Richens, the film's co-director, acclaimed filmmaker, former Democracy Now! producer, founding director of the documentary program at the Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. I also spoke with Jean Theo Harris, professor of political science at Brooklyn College, author of the award-winning biography The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, on which the new documentary is based. I began by asking you, Ruba why she chose to take on this project and why she felt it was important to tell the story of Rosa Parks over a half a century later.
3: I was uh, contacted by my co-director, Joanna Hamilton, um, who had uh, connected with Jean about the book. Um, and was quite astonished that uh, a full-length documentary film had not been made (laughs) about Rosa Parks. Um, And she contacted—she read the book, uh, contacted me— and asked if I wanted to, to work with told me to read the book and asked if I wanted to work with her uh, on getting a documentary on making a documentary and as I was reading the book again and again I was um, astonished to learn so much more about uh, mrs. Parks life and her work and her activism and I just thought it was a you know a story that hadn't been told um, on so many different you know so many different levels uh, in terms of the work that the activism and work that uh, Mrs. Parks did before the bus boycott, um, her uh, relationship with her husband, um, and how he brought her into activism, uh, and all of her work post the boycott, uh, how she got to Detroit, um, and, you know, the work that she did uh, in Detroit. And I have to say, Amy, um, I don't know if you, rem- you remember, but we were in D.C. Uh, at, at the memorial at the memorial. For her, I was working for Democracy Now. You know, um, and. Uh, that's—you know, we were at her beautiful memorial. memorial. It,
0: it was astounding. And I remember, of course, when we hopped on the train, I was watching CNN in the newsroom here at Democracy Now! And it said Rosa Parks had died, and there was going to be this memorial, right? First um, woman and second African-American to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda, uh, that she was an amazing woman, because she was really just a tired seamstress. She was no troublemaker, they said. Said. Well, of course, that's exactly what she was. And it's exactly what you document in this amazing film and Jean Theo Harris that you wrote about in The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. We hopped on that train, went down to tell that story. I mean, thousands came yeah. out for—and this wasn't even the big funeral in Detroit. This was right, just this wasn't, right, yeah, to this honor was, her. Cicely it was incredible Tyson to see that, Winfrey were yeah. Now. So that takes us to Jean. Jean, you're an academic, you're a professor. Uh, Talk about your investigations of the civil rights movement and then realizing what we didn't know about a woman who perhaps everyone knows her name, Rosa Parks.
5: Right. And I think you and Yoruba, starting with that memorial, that funeral, is actually where I started, because I was both transfixed by it. It's an incredible, really unprecedented honor um, for a woman activist, for a civil rights activist. And yet, as both of you are noting, she gets smaller and smaller in it. Um, she's talked about as accidental. She's talked about as, not, right, not a troublemaker. She's incessantly referred to as quiet, not angry, humble, quiet. Uh, and so I, I do a talk a few months later on how we memorialize uh the civil rights movement because to me we couldn't separate her funeral and this outpouring of congress this kind of stampede of congressional leaders wanting to honor mrs parks from what happened two months earlier which was the travesty of hurricane katrina and the federal negligence after the storm dur- during before and after the storm and so this me was inseparable. So I do a couple of talks, and a friend says, Will you turn that talk into a chapter for this book I'm doing? So I'm thinking to myself, Sure, but now I need to tell a little fuller story about Mrs. Parks than I knew. There's got to be a good biography. And I look, and there's no serious biography of Rosa Parks. Mm. And until my book comes out in 2013, There is no serious footnote or biography of her. But when I start to look—and I'm coming to this as as a scholar of the civil rights movement outside of the South—and one of the first things that I start to realize is how huge her political life is after the boycott, they're forced to leave Montgomery in 57, eight months after the boycott successful end, move to Detroit, to what she describes as the Northern Promised Land that wasn't. And so, she'll spend the next 40 years fighting the racism, the school segregation, the housing segregation, the job discrimination, the police brutality of the North. And that whole second half, right, even those of us who knew she wasn't, just a simple seamstress, had really missed that second half, missed all of her connections to black power, missed all of her connections to the anti-war movement in the 60s, to the anti-apartheid movement. And so there was just
0: this much bigger story to tell. And I realize it's not just an article, it's a book. Well, before we move forward in her life from sitting down on the bus December 1st, 1955, let's go back. In this clip from The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, she describes how her grandfather's response to racism shaped her as a child. We hear actress Lisa Gay Hamilton reading from Rosa Parks' letters
6: By the time I was six, I was old enough to realize that we were actually not free. The Ku Klux Klan was riding through the black community, burning churches, killing people. I later learned that it was because African American soldiers were returning from World War I and acting as if they deserved equal rights because they had served their country. At one point, the violence was so bad that my grandfather kept his gun close by at all times. Grandfather was going to defend his home, whatever happened. I want to see him shoot that gun.
0: And in this clip from the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, we learn about her husband, Raymond Parks, known as Parks.
6: Raymond Parks was the first real activist I ever met. He was a longtime member of the NAACP. He was the first man I had met since the death of my grandfather
1: that was not ready to accept what we call buying and scraping
6: and yes-yesing. He was in his late 20s and working as a barber in the black barber shop in downtown Montgomery.
4: A mutual friend introduces Rose and Raymond Parks to one another. Rose is initially not interested.
6: I thought he was too white had an aversion to white men, with the exception of my grandfather, and Raymond Parks is very light-skinned. And her
4: experience with light-skinned black men is that they're usually politically timid. Couldn't be further from the truth,
6: right, about Raymond. Parks, everyone called him Parks, would tell me about his problems growing up being very fair-complected.
4: He's also the owner of a red Nash.
6: He had a car,
1: a little red nash with a rumble seat. You know, that was something very special. Uh-huh. Well, it was a young man the own his own car, especially when he wasn't driving in a white
0: boat. And excerpt of The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks. Yoruba Richin, this rich history—I mean, the story of Rosa Parks tells us the story of the 20th century, from the grandfather in World War I to her husband, uh, Raymond Parks, and their partnership. Tell us about her family and how that shaped her and how what it tells us about the history of this country.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable to think that, you know, some of her earliest memories are sitting with her grandfather, um, uh, watching the Ku Klux Klan try to, you know, intimidate and terrorize their house, and her grandfather defending uh, with a gun, defending his family, um, you know, I think that also tells us so much about uh, the role of self-defense in our struggle—not only our freedom struggle, but our struggle to stay alive uh, in this country—and that self-defense was always a part of um, our our strategy for uh, fighting for our rights and for and for our our body bodily integrity. Um, and she really epitomized that, and you see that you know, throughout her life. Um, And also, her uh, uh, her grandfather's—her grandfather's— Uh, You know, both both descendants of her family being descendants of slaves, Um, her mother's uh, value on on education, uh, being sent to Miss White's school where she learned, uh, you know, flourished as a as a reader and a a lover of history. Um, This was a really uh, intelligent. Um, woman who, you know, she says that if she, unfortunately, she wasn't able to go to college, but she, you know, what she would have liked to do, uh, if she, you know, if she was able to, uh, and, um, her family, uh, took her in after, uh, she had to leave Detroit after she had to leave Montgomery for Detroit, and and protected her. Um, and we really wanted to tell that story, that personal story of who she was, because again, you know her name, uh, but we don't know you know so much, and we certainly didn't know her her personal. Her personal story.
0: We'll speak more with Yoruba Richon and Professor Jean Thea Harris about the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks in thirty seconds. I didn't know why. I knew I could
6: fly. I knew I could fly.
0: I, knew I could fly by our native daughters. This is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to look at the new Peacock documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, that premieres Wednesday. In a moment, we'll continue our conversation with the film's co-director, Yoruba Richin, and Professor Jean Theo Harris. But first, let's go back to the documentary. In this clip, actress Lisa Gay Hamilton reads from Rosa Parks' letters about her investigation in 1944 of what happened to Reese Taylor, Black Mother and sharecropper raped by six white men in Alabama.
6: I remember one case out in Abbeville, Alabama, where my father and his family came from. Mrs. Reese Taylor was on her way home from church when she was kidnapped, forced into a car at gun and knife point, stripped of her clothing, and raped by six white men on September 3, 1944.
4: Put a blindfold on her, took her back, and dumped her in the middle of town, and said, "If you tell anybody, we'll kill you." She went promptly to the sheriff and told him, and they realize that
5: nothing's going to happen to these these men. Rosa Parks hears about this from a white woman they know through Scottsboro organizing. So Rosa Parks and some of her comrades decided that they should investigate it. Rosa
4: Parks was sent to get the testimony. In those times, to go 100 miles from home, the sheriff is outside driving by, and he goes again. Well, there he is. I just only can imagine what that must have been like, sitting there and actually having her tell that story, and Rosa Parks writing down every word. It was incredibly dangerous
2: for um, a black woman to report, to detail that they had been the victims of sexual violence. For Ms. Parks, it was especially dangerous going into communities because she was seen as the problem
3: in collaboration with several other activists, they'd go as far as to take out an ad in the local newspaper in order to let people know what had taken place and to place pressure on law enforcement to do something.
0: Again, that clip from The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, the same title as the book on which it's based um, by Jean Theo Harris. Uh, Jean, if you can tell us more about how this shaped, this the rape of Recy Taylor shaped, and also the reference before that to the Scottsboro Boys. Rosa Parks went with all of this.
5: So, Rosa Parks gets involved with the Scottsboro case because of Raymond. Um, when she meets Raymond in 1931, as we heard her say in that clip earlier, he's the first real activist I ever met. And what he's doing in 1931 is organizing around the Scottsboro case, organizing. These are nine young men who were riding the rails. They get arrested. When two white women are found in the train, that charge changes to rape. They're quickly tried, and all but the youngest, who's 12, sentenced to death. So, local activists in Alabama, including Raymond Parks, began to organize to try to protect and defend the Scottsboro Boys from being executed, and are doing things like bringing the Scottsboro Boys food in prison. And that's what Raymond's doing when she meets him. And so, in the beginning, he's the more public activist, and, and she's more behind the scenes. Uh, but they're having meetings in their house. She'll talk about late-night meetings, guns on the table. Now, by the 1940s, she's wanting to be even more active. Um, Her brother is fighting in World War II like many black men are, and yet most black people can't vote at home. And so she goes to her first Montgomery NAACP meeting in 1943. and she makes it known she wants to register to vote. And a man by the name of Edie Nixon comes by her apartment to bring her some materials. And there will begin a partnership that's going to change the face of American history. Because Edie Nixon and Rosa Parks are going to set out to transform Montgomery's NAACP into a much more activist branch. And one of the areas that they are working in are what we would now call issues of racism in the criminal legal system. So there are two kinds of cases, cases where black people, and often black men, are being wrongfully accused, and cases where black people, and particularly black women, are not protected by the law, and so are being raped or brutalized, and the, and the law does not protect them. And so, Reese Taylor is one such case, but it's only one of many that she's investigating that they're trying to get justice for. And so, over and over, they try, and over and over, there is no justice. And so, I think one thing that we can see in Rosa Parks's life in this decade, right, from the mid-'40s, right, till— the early to mid-50s, is how many things they're trying and how hard it is, as she would put, to keep going when all our efforts seemed in vain. And so she is getting, as we would call it today, you know, she's getting depressed, she's getting burned out. Um, And so this is taking a toll. And yet, I think one of the things that makes parks so— that I admire so much in her is this ability to keep going even when you get discouraged. And that's what we'll see her do.
0: So let's go back to the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks um, to that moment when she refuses to stand up to give her seat to a white man on the bus. This is her arrest on December 1st, 1955, that launched the Montgomery bus boycott. And in this, you're featured, Jean, the historian Jean Theo Harris. Um, and Rosa Parks in her letters, uh, read by actress Lisa Gay Hamilton, along with Rosa Parks' voice itself. I had finished my day's work, and by the time I walked to
1: the bus, there was one vacant seat which I took. It was on the third stop
5: when this man got on and was left standing. The front of the bus was reserved for white people, the back of the bus was reserved for black people, and then there's the middle. And the middle is kind of a no-man's land that black people are entitled to sit there, but on the whim of the driver could be asked to move. By the terms of Alabama segregation, all four people in her aisle will have
6: to get up for this one white person to sit down. The driver said... Y'all better make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. I could not see how standing up was going to make it light for me. I thought back to the time when I used to sit up all night and my grandfather would have his gun right by the fireplace.
1: As I sat there and waited to be arrested, I didn't know whether I would be manhandled or hurt physically or what would happen. The policeman approached me. He said, why don't you stand up? I said, I don't think I should have to stand up. And I asked him, I said, why do you push us around? He said, I do not
0: know, but
1: the law is the law and you are under arrest.
0: Our guest, Jean Theo Harris, is among those we hear from in this next clip also about the challenges Rosa Parks faced after the Montgomery bus boycott, along with Rosa Parks herself and historians Mary Frances Berry, Keisha Blaine, and Robin D.G. Kelly, as well as others. All sorts of
5: rumors snake through Montgomery's white community about Rosa Parks, that she's a NAACP plant, that she's a communist plant, she has a car, she's Mexican, that
3: she's not even from Montgomery. We don't often want to talk about the reprisals, we don't want to talk about the consequences and how people make personal sacrifices in order to advance a broader movement. After the incident, I worked five weeks
1: through the month of December and was discharged from my job after the first week in uh, January.
4: The owner of the barbershop on the Air Force Base prohibits, you know, all discussion of Rosa Parks and all discussion of the bus boycott. And Raymond resigns in protest, thinking that, you know, if he can't defend his wife, that, you know, he's being silenced. Dr. King
2: ends up getting the accolades. He is invited everywhere to speak honorarium, makes money, survives. He, he's the hero. The civil rights groups would have her go out and speak at events and raise money, but it never occurred to anybody that they ought to find some way for them to be supported. I think that part of the way she was treated was because she was a woman, therefore taken advantage.
4: Montgomery's a small town. People had to know that she was no longer working. King. None of them offered her a job. Rothwa was also a prideful woman and would not dare ask. And I don't think she was the kind of woman that would think she was owed.
0: Again, that's a clip from the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks that is premiering on Peacock. Um, Yoruba Richin, if you can talk about this key moment—even this, uh, the moment where she sits down on the bus, um, refuses to get up for a white passenger, is arrested—not um, as much is known about it, certainly the background of her remarkable activist history. But what surprised
3: you most about this period? Well, a f- couple of things surprised me the most. Um, first off, really digging into what the boycott was, was really interesting for me and, that kind of um, rich detail around how it actually worked that there were you know dispatchers that it was that it was women let mostly led by women um, hearing from the youth who took part in it was so beautiful um, and how they you know how the the town the, the black community of Montgomery came together and worked together to uh, over you know a long period of time almost a year to make it a success so that was really—that um, was really eye-opening for me um, to see, you know, actually how it worked. And then, of course, the backlash. Uh, you know, I had known that she went, uh, to, you know, went to Detroit, lived in Detroit, spent the last—the most part of her life in Detroit, but never knew why she—why she went, why she got there. And um, that backlash was uh, and the threats to her life and to her uh, well-being. You know what they, she had to get out of there. Uh, we often think of these um, civil rights leaders as you know heroic and make these stances, and then everything's fine. Um, but the risk and the um, the danger. That they face is often not explored, and uh, we really, you know, obviously that was that's a key moment to her life, um, and part of uh, and part of what she sacrificed by taking a stand on that bus. And Professor Thea Harris, what
0: was accomplished in terms of the Supreme Court decision that would come a year later? The um how many people knew that it was Rosa Parks who launched Dr. Martin Luther King, really, into the huge public uh, in national and international arena? Right. Um, so
5: the boycott is 382 days. Um, like Yoruba said, it is massively well-organized. They set up 40 pickup stations. They're giving 10 to 15,000 rides a day. This is an incredible, black-organized, women-led movement. Two months in, one of the things they had learned—so Rosa Parks is not the first person to get arrested on the bus. There was a a trickle of people over the decade before Rosa Parks. We, We know the name Claudette Colvin, eight months earlier. Colvin is arrested on the bus. But about a decade earlier, a woman by the name of Viola White is arrested on the bus. She decides to pursue her case. In response, they do two things. The police rape her daughter. And then the state ties up her appeal in state court and never hears it. So one of the things Montgomery's black community has learned from that is that the state may try to do the same thing with Rosa Parks' case, because now we're post-Brown, so there is much more chance that this could get um, changed on appeal. So what Fred Gray, Rosa Parks' 25-year-old lawyer, decides to do is to file a proactive case into federal court. And that case has four women on it—Claudette Colvin, Mary Louise Smith, two teenagers. Um, Aurelia Browder, is, she's the title woman, and an older woman by the name of Susie McDonald. It is that case that goes all the way to the Supreme Court and leads to the desegregation of Montgomery's buses. Um, and so, it is this multi-pronged strategy, right? There's Rosa Parks's case, there's this incredibly well-organized boycott, um, and there. Rosa Parks, as we saw, is traveling that year to raise money um, to keep this boycott going. Then they have this federal case. So, there's many tactics that lead to the desegregation of Montgomery's buses on December 21st, 1956. But that does not stop the suffering of the Parks family. And sadly, leaving Montgomery doesn't stop the suffering. And I think what we see in the Detroit section is that
0: suffering goes on for many, many years. Let's go to the Detroit section. In this clip of the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, we learn about Rosa's life after she moved to Detroit. We hear from Detroit civil rights activist Ed Vaughn, from relatives of Rosa Parks, including her niece, Rhea McCauley, great-nephew Lonnie McCauley, and Parks herself through her letters, read by Lisa Gay Hamilton.
6: I don't know whether I could have been more effective as a worker for freedom in the South than I am here in Detroit. Really, the same thing that has occurred in the South is existing here to a certain degree. We do have the same problems.
4: Blacks in Detroit were relegated to the worst parts of town called Black Bottom and uh, Haston Street. But we built homes there and institutions
2: developed there. It was very difficult, you know, to say the least. So what my grandfather would do, he would just grow his own food. My father had a green thumb. He'd work all day in the Chrysler's plant, and then he would come home and work a garden. We grew up on uh, fresh tomatoes, green peppers, onion. There was enough food in that little plot for him, grandmother, Auntie Rose, and Uncle Parks. Rosa Parks is a very creative person and she would take found objects and create stuff out of them you know of course dresses and ideas of quilts she taught us how to sew the stitches were absolutely perfect she could tailor anything she could look at something and go home and sew it
0: from the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, uh, talk about this period, Yoruba, in Detroit. And, of course, that's where, well, when she died, the big funeral was, but how Detroit shaped her.
3: Yeah, and how she shaped Detroit. I mean, you go there now, and you have murals, you have Rosa Parks Boulevard. Um, her imprint in that city is really palpable. Um So... The Northern Promised Land—that was it. I think—describes it all. And of course, she's there throughout the uh, uprisings that happened in Detroit at that time. The 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 biggest uprising, uh, racial uprising, uh, the, this country had seen. She is um, there uh, on the on the um, the People's Tribunal, which, <clears throat> excuse me, which uh, was put together by the people of Detroit, by the Black people of Detroit in response to the killing at out Al- at Algiers motel um, that uh, of the the young boys and who were getting no justice uh, by the police I mean Detroit has a like many cities but Detroit has had a uh, notorious relationship violent relationship with the black community um, and she uh, was part of a tribunal that was at the Church of the Black Madonna uh, a militant black church very famous church activist Church uh, that she also uh, uh was a part of and and, and uh, attended um, and they put on a tribunal and they had uh you know to seek justice some kind of justice uh, for the for the for the young boys and the uh, and to you know give the to to rule that these officers were were guilty um, her she worked for John Conyers. Um, he, She helped him get elected and work that was her first paid political job. Um, and Conyers, she was—you know, Conyers was the first um, uh, congressman to introduce the H.R. 40, the reparations bill. She was a supporter of reparations. I mean, her uh, support for the black freedom struggle all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up until she passed, was, you know, through— the work that was going on in Conyers' office and and in Detroit. More with Yoruba and co-director of the new documentary
0: The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Parks and Professor Jean Harris when we come back in 30 seconds.
6: Together
2: Keeps raining all
0: Horns singing Stormy Weather. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue to look at the new Peacock documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, that premieres Wednesday. On Friday, I spoke with the film's co director, Yoruba Richin, and Brooklyn College professor, Jean Theo Harris. I asked her to talk about how Rosa Parks had no problem supporting both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X.
5: Exactly. She saw no contradiction. In fact, she would describe Malcolm X as her personal hero, and yet it saw no contradiction with that and her incredible love and respect for Dr. King. She embraced Ella Baker and Queen Mother Moore. Right? This is we hear Joanne Watson in the film talk about her being holistic. That this that one of the things that mrs parks is so good at is that she shows up for everything she is looking for all different kinds of strategies to challenge the the kind of racial injustice in this country the social injustice poverty war right she she has a whole platter of issues that she's working on and she's not she refuses to choose she's You know, she is part of the NAACP, and yet she's doing all of this work in the late 60s and 1970s around political prisoner cases, from um, Angela Davis to the Wilmington 10 to the RNA-11. And we see in the film um, what happens to the Republic of New Africa, which is actually born in Detroit, is a reparations black power group um, before it moves to Mississippi. Uh, she's. She's a longtime supporter of reparations. She is an early opponent of the war in Vietnam. In fact, that's part of why she's supporting John Conyers in 1964 and helping him get elected, because he is such a staunch union person, like she is. He is already out against Vietnam, like she is. And um, her job for Conyers really ends this decade of suffering for the Parks family. Uh, She had been working at what we could call a glorified sweatshop in the early 60s, um, Conyers' job comes with health insurance. Both she and Raymond had had um, a number of health issues for her related to the stress of this work. Uh, I think we don't often understand the kind of toll this takes. We we honor Rosa Parks, but we erase right what is a decade of suffering, really, for her and her family. Um, but then she's on the ground doing constituent work with John Conyers, doing work to challenge Detroit's racism and traveling the country taking part in the Black Power Convention in Philadelphia. She's on staff at the National Black Political Convention in Gary. She uh, is at the one of the first meetings of ENCOBRA, which is a reparations group. She's doing work around South African divestment. When I was doing interviews for the book, I interviewed a lot of people who had worked with her in Detroit in these years. and. Over and over, people would say she was everywhere. They would say, I would go there and I'd be surprised, here's Rosa again. Over and over, at so many different political groups, rallies, marches, mobilizations, she was there.
0: So, I want to go back to this remarkable film, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, and look at how being a woman shaped her participation in the civil rights struggle. This clip features the historian Mary Frances Berry and Erica Huggins of the Black Panther Party, activist Gloria Richardson, former Detroit City Council member Joanne Watson, and Rosa Parks in her own words, again, read from her letters by actress Lisa Gay Hamilton.
6: I was with the March on Washington in 1963 That was a great occasion But women were not allowed to play much of a role The March on
3: Washington is one example of how black women are often marginalized in the civil rights movement. If you look at those who spoke, with the exception of Daisy Bates, who only spoke for a few minutes, the entire program was dominated by men was
6: a tribute to women in which a Philip Randolph, one of the organizers of the march, introduced some of the women who had participated in the struggle, and I was one of them.
2: They would have her
6: stand up and wave at people.
2: There's Rosa Parks, you know, she sat down on the bus in Montgomery, wave at him Rosa Parks, Mrs. Parks, and she sat sit down. They never said
1: anything beyond that. I was 15 when I went to the March on Washington. I stood there in awe of all of the people that had gathered. And I remember Lena Horne moving swiftly to the front of the stage, picked up a microphone and sung two syllables. Marina! And they lingered in the
0: air. There was a blanket of silence. Lena, she was taking Rosa Parks around to European satellite
4: stations and saying, "This is the woman that started Montgomery. This is it. so." When I saw her doing that, I joined her. We were determined to see that Rosa Parks was recognized.
2: There's so much patriarchy built into the movement, like it's built into so many institutions. Women raise most of the money, do most of the organizing, but when you go back and check the record, those who've been labeled presidents or directors or the leaders, you know, the grand poobah, largely have been men, while the women have done the work and Mother Park's uh, She was
0: doing the work. As you refer to her as Mrs. Parks, talk about your use—I mean, even in the title, uh, the rebellious life, not of Rosa Parks, but of Mrs. Rosa Parks, the significance of that honorific for uh, Mrs.
3: Parks. Well, I have to defer to to Jean around that, but I know that as soon as—all I remember is that as soon as we started working uh, on this film, (laughs) we started referring to her as Mrs. Parks, and I think that was a a Jean directive. Jean.
5: So, I mean, certainly, if you talk to anybody who knew Mrs. Parks, they refer to her as Mrs. Parks, um, and and certainly, I remember as we started to do interviews, I was like, people are not going to, they are always going to say it, so we always have to say it, right? Um, and I think the Mrs. does a couple of things. I think the first is it is an honorific that black women, black women, particularly black women of Rosa Parks's. Generation did not get. And so it is not surprising then that everyone who talks about Mrs. Parks who knew her are fastidious about using it because it is giving her a kind of honorific that she was often denied. Um, I think there's a second reason that I use it in the book, which is that I think Rosa Parks rolls off the tongue. We think we know her. And I I think part of putting the Misses there was to stop us a little bit, to to make us have to both take a step back. That she's not ours, right? That we don't just get to use her however we want, but also that we might not know her. Um, and and so I really fought to have Misses in the title. I also think it just the cadence of it is really lovely. Um, but but basically. This is how anyone who knew her referred to her, and I think it makes us
3: have to come to her and learn about her in a different way. Go ahead, Yoruba. Oh, I was just, just going to say, I also love how Joanne Watson refers to her as Mother Parks yes. as well. Yes.
0: So we want to end with one more clip from the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. This is about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., beginning with Sam Cooke's song, A Change Is Gonna Come. We also hear from Rosa Parks' niece, Rhea Cauley.
6: Like medicine to the soul. It It was as if Dr. King was speaking directly to me.
2: I rarely saw her show emotion, but when Dr. King was assassinated, I saw her cry at his funeral.
6: losing the people I love best. My husband and brother were all sick, and there was a time when I was traveling every day to three different hospitals to visit them. I had to quit working full-time and work only part-time.
2: Auntie Rose and Uncle Parks loved each other till the end. That's, Uncle Parks' health deteriorated um, the loving way that she would take care of him. They were so closely, joined together.
6: Parks died in 1977 when he was 74 after a five-year struggle against cancer. My brother Sylvester died three months after that, also of cancer. Mama was ill with cancer, too. I cared for her at home until she died at the age of 91. That from the life the rebellious life
0: of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Um, as we begin to wrap up, uh, Yoruba Richen, um if you can talk about what Rosa Parks' life Means for today. The idea that rights not fully achieved, not in the film, but very interesting is her fierce opposition to Clarence Thomas becoming a Supreme Court Justice, saying it would not represent a step forward in the road to racial progress, but a U turn on that road, like his statements on Brown v. Board of Education and even on Roe v. Wade. Talk about this.
3: Yeah, I mean, It's quite remarkable, um, you know, that uh, her speaking out against his nomination and what we're going through today—I mean, granted, you know, when he was nominated, many of us knew this was not a a positive thing for for our civil rights, but she, as uh, somebody, um, you know, who was who was well who was uh, you know obviously well known and and considered the mother of the of the movement um, her speaking out against him was very important and uh, those words ring true today um, we're seeing a a total retrenchment of you know of so many rights uh, from uh, women's rights uh, to civil rights um, uh, gun rights—I'm uh, sorry, gun uh, control, um, uh, a bunch of other cases that are on the docket that are uh, in danger of taking away other rights. Um, so. Mrs. Parks, you know, sat on—I think of how she sat with her grandfather uh, in the early 1900s uh, facing the KKK and and defending—with him defending his house and, you know, where we are today, and that she never stopped fighting for that— for that justice and knew that we weren't there even at the end of her life. And obviously we're still not now, but gives us some, gives me some inspiration um, and hope that you have to keep on keeping on. And I think Miss Parks knew that.
0: Yoruba Richon, co-director with Joanna Hamilton of the new Peacock documentary The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. It premieres on Wednesday. Yoruba is the founding director of the documentary program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, the City University of New York. The film is based on the biography by the same name— um, uh, that was written by Brooklyn College Professor Gene Theo Harris. That does it for our show. Democracy Now is currently accepting applications for video news production fellowship and a people and culture manager. You can learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina guzdemer Messiah rhodes Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresina, Tammy Warren Fett, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Massoud, and Mary Conlin. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. To see all our shows, you can go to any podcast platform or democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.